So, as was mentioned earlier, we've seen the news of this last week, and what struck me as I was uh, reading articles and looking at pictures from different websites uh, was the tears, not the tears of joy that were coming down, but the tears of sorrow that were falling from people. It's as though they lost something. And they were longing for a rule or a law to be their deliverance, to deliver them from fear, to deliver them from the unknown of having children. Now, to remember that this cuts through the hearts on both sides of the aisle, you'll remember January 6th of last year, where there were tears there and anger there, and people responding with all kinds of worry and fear because they too longed for a deliverer. When we look at this passage this morning, we come away from it with Mark building an escalation, and at the mountain peak, he is forcing us to ask this important question. Who is your deliverer? With the circumstances and situations in life, who, or we could even ask the question, what is the hope for your deliverance? You read through the Psalms and there is this constant cry, deliver me, O Lord, deliver me, O Lord. And that cry is in our hearts because of the situations that we find ourselves in the relationships we find ourselves in, the internal fears that we have. And there is this longing in our hearts, deliver me, deliver me. And the way of the world, the way of the unbeliever is to turn to people, turn inward to themselves, turn to government all along the way as the ultimate hope of deliverance. And here we come to the Bible, and Jesus is working with his disciples, leading them through so many different events in life, so many different wonderful events, teaching them all along the way. And now at this point in Mark, he turns to his disciples, and he's asking the question, who do you say that I am? So that's where we're going this morning. Let me introduce the sermon by just saying we're coming to a very important turning point in the book of Mark. From the very beginning of Mark's gospel, he has told us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And then he quotes Isaiah saying, prepare a way for the Lord. For eight chapters, Mark has been giving us these accounts and these teachings of who Jesus is as the Christ, the Son of God. The term Christ, sorry guys, I'll get to that in a little while, not right now. The term Christ itself means anointed one. And in the Jewish mind, there were three offices that meant or had significance when it came to the process of anointing. Literally, people were anointed with oil as a means of setting them apart for a particular service. Three offices that you have in your notes, I didn't put them up on the screen, but simply the prophet the priest, and the king. The prophet was anointed with oil when he came or began his work of speaking on God's behalf. And the people people loved, well, sometimes they loved the prophets being able to say, okay, we hear God's voice. At times they rejected them. 
There was the priest who was anointed with oil when he began his work of sacrificing on behalf of the people. But then there was the king. The king was anointed with oil when he began his work of serving his people with leadership and delivering them from their enemies. And you remember this in David's life when Samuel went and set him apart by anointing him with oil. This third category, the category of a king being a Christ, a Messiah, or a deliverer is a category that the Jews have longed for desperately as we're reading Mark's gospel. They want someone who will deliver them from centuries of oppression. And in books like Isaiah, this is where Isaiah 61 comes in, you read about a coming anointed one. Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2 says this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has messiahed me, anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, Listen to the language of setting free. To proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Anointed one is the Christ. And Mark is saying the anointed one, the Christ, has shown up. So into the first century walks Jesus into that context of anticipation. People looking for the Messiah walks Jesus. He teaches like a powerful prophet. We've seen that in Mark. We'll see his role as a sacrifice coming up in the second half of Mark. But we also see him setting people free from their oppressive conditions, such as paralysis, the man with a withered hand, demon possession. He has the ability to set people free. Will he do it on a macro level? Is Jesus the Messiah? Is he the Christ? Is he the one who is promised? Is he the long-awaited king who would usher in a kingdom to help the brokenhearted, to come to the captives and to those who are bound and set them free? Jesus turns to his disciples and says, Who do you say that I am? Am I the Christ? The passage that we are coming from, or covering and moving into, I should say, shows us the process of how the disciples are moving from confusion to clarity on who Jesus is. And my hope this morning is that wherever you are in life right now, whatever you're facing in life right now, you will be convinced that the ultimate source of your deliverance is not in anything or anyone other than Jesus himself. Okay, so the big idea for the sermon is this. Your life can and should be characterized by the truth that Jesus is the deliverer. Your life can and should be characterized by the truth that Jesus is the deliverer, which kind of begs the question, what characterizes your life this week? Is your life characterized, evidencing, if I can use that word in a verbal form, Jesus is my hope. Is your life overflowing with that message this week? And in the, in the depths of your heart, no matter what you're facing, no matter what 
trials you're facing, is there this firm-rooted conviction that no matter what, Jesus is my deliverer and I can go through this. He will lead me through this. It's not necessarily that it's easy. And we see Jesus' life not characterized by ease by any means. But does your life, is it characterized by this rock-solid foundation that Jesus is the deliverer? Maybe you have things in your heart that you've been wrestling with. We all do. Thoughts about the past, hurts about the past. So many times we go through these mental gymnastics of how can I just sort of leap from this lily pad to the next one in order to get where I want to mentally so that doesn't bother me. Instead of going back to, okay, Jesus, you are the deliverer. You are my security. You are my fortress. And you, I can rest this morning, even though it's hard. It's hard. So your life can and should be characterized by the truth that Jesus is the deliverer. Two points to the sermon. Believe in what Jesus has done and believe in who he is. So point number one, believe in what Jesus has done. And this is where we start, chapter 8. Jesus performed miracles. This is what he's done. Jesus has performed miracles. And so we see that this crowd is with Jesus This is the second time we've seen a great crowd like this. And Jesus looks over the crowd and we see that his response to their neediness, their trial that they're in, is not hard-hearted callousness, indifference. It's not, oh, forget about you. Here we see Jesus the man. And we see him looking out over 4,000 people who have been with him for three days. And the verb here, or the word here, I should say, that characterizes Jesus. We've seen this before. It's that Greek word, remember that from a few weeks ago? It has that onomatopoeia, tip-tap, tip-tap. Sounds like somebody tip-tapping across the, the stage. What does that sound like? It sounds like your guts. It sounds like something is moving you internally. And here it is, Jesus, who is having compassion on the crowds here. They need to be fed. And so he turns to his disciples and says, I can't send them away. They're going to faint on the way home. And you say, well, how is it that 4,000 people could hang out with a man for three days and not have anything to eat? Keep in mind, this is a different century, different part of the world. And if Jesus is teaching maybe on the rolling hills, people, the crowds would have followed him and they would have brought probably some baskets with them, some blankets. And there's no Holiday Inn. There's no Super 8. And so... They make their beds right there in the tall grass and just kind of hang with him and set up whatever kind of shelter they can. Now it's day three and they're out of food. And Jesus says, we have to feed them. And so the disciples ask, well, how can someone feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? So you know that they're out in the, in the sticks away from the towns. That's where Jesus' ministry often takes place. So Jesus goes to them and he asks them, well, how many loaves do we have? And they respond with seven and He seats them down on the grass, and we see the miracle that he performs and multiplying the loaves. And then we see that fish are brought into this context, and he multiplies the fish. And so here's this great crowd of 4,000 people whom Jesus is standing in front of, hungry. And he performs this miracle to the point that it says their stomachs were full and seven baskets were left over. Now... 
let me just pause here for a moment and ask the following question. Do you believe that this event actually happened? I mean, we read about it from Sunday school. We've known about the other story and a little boy showing up with loaves and bread. Do you believe that Jesus was able and is able to multiply the bread and the fish and actually feed the 4,000 people that Mark presents in this story? All right, so get past your familiarity with the story for a moment and just ask yourself, do I actually believe that this happened and that Jesus can do this? Do I believe it? You might say, well, why are you asking us the question? The reason is because belief is necessary for you to truly come to Jesus with a desire for deliverance. If you are sitting there and you're saying, yes, I believe that Jesus can multiply the bread and the fish and meet the needs of those people, then we would say, with the needs that you have going on in your life, you would come to Jesus and say, I believe you can. I believe that you can deliver me through this. And, and I'm not talking about some sort of willy-nilly prosperity gospel where life is going to be easy. We're saying that Jesus can be your deliverer in the midst of that trial and bring you through it. If you believe this, then your mind ought to turn to the need that you're facing right now and say, okay, Jesus, in faith, I'm laying hold of you and saying, I don't know how. Because who would have known how Jesus would have done this? But in faith, you're saying, okay, I believe you. I believe that you have performed miracles. I believe that you are the Messiah who can do this. I believe that you are the deliverer. I believe it. And, I, and I'm going to follow you and I'm going to trust you. You think about the pattern of faith that we've seen up through Mark to this point. That paralytic was brought to Jesus, who was in the house teaching. There was no room for people to get through the front door. It was so packed that they walked up to the top of the house, started pulling off the roof, and said, we believe that we have to get this guy down in front of that man there so that he can be healed. And the text says, when Jesus saw their faith, he responded. The woman with the issue of blood who came up behind him, she believed that he could do this. And so she just touched the hem of his garment and he turned around and says, your faith has made you well. With Jairus' daughter, again, he showed up at the house and he said, do not fear, only believe. The Jesus who performed the miracle of multiplying the loaves and fish and satisfied the hunger for everyone Everyone who came forward to eat is the same Jesus who offers a far greater miracle of much grander proportions. And this is where Mark is going in his gospel. This is the miracle of the gospel. The miracle that exchanges. Here is the miracle that Jesus can do. He is able and willing to deliver you from sin by exchanging his righteousness to your account so that you can stand before God innocently where Jesus would say, my life, Father, has been given to him as a gift so you don't see him anymore as a sinner or her anymore as a sinner. You see him or her through my righteousness. God actually looks at your life, the life in which you and I have lived, committed all kinds of sins, 
all kinds of regrets, wishing we could go back and do over and say, I can't undo history. We can't. I'll be defined by what happened in the past. And here's God who says, oh, man, I've got deliverance for you. It's through my son. You want deliverance? Come to the son in faith. That's the prerequisite over and over again. And here before God, like the ultimate judge, the only one who matters, we find deliverance through Jesus himself. In order to believe that your sin is miraculously removed from your life, you must believe in a true miracle worker. If you can't believe that Jesus did this with the bread and fish, you can't believe that he can save you from sin. You can't. Jesus becomes just a historical figure, a religious dude that you pay homage to because it's your duty, but he's not a personal deliverer for you. And so, folks, you have to believe the miraculous power of Jesus. Second, Mark shows us the importance of faith by showing us the failure of faith on behalf of the Pharisees. So point number two, we see this, that Jesus establishes his authority. Do you believe in the authority of Jesus? Point number two is Jesus establishes his authority. And and we see this where he is now in a Jewish territory. The Pharisees are here. And they come to him um, seeking a sign. Now, we might think that that's kind of a cool thing. Hey, Jesus, put on another show for us to wow us so that you get the glory for this. But keep in mind that every time the Pharisees are approaching Jesus, there's no faith on their behalf. No friendliness, no desire for agreement. In fact, back in chapter 3, the Pharisees and the Herodians have been seeking a way to destroy him. So this question, this desire is a ploy. And we see it here in the text where they are seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. So what's going on here? The Pharisees don't want another miracle They have seen the miracles, and they even know that Jesus can perform these miracles. What they are demanding is more than that. They're demanding a sign. Essentially, they are telling Jesus, if you're great, then a sign from heaven needs to happen right now. God in heaven will have to speak in order to validate you. More validation, more proof, more evidence. Now, by the way, it's interesting that in the next few weeks, you get over to chapter 9, and what takes place is God does open up the heaven, and he speaks, and he says, this is my beloved son. Three of the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration will hear it. That's what the Pharisees want right now. Now, what's wrong with all of this? Uh, A few things could be said. But let me just say this, that signs are not the ultimate reason for you to believe. Signs are not the ultimate reason for us to believe. Now, sometimes we fall into that trap, right? If we just saw Jesus do the miraculous in front of us, wow, we would forever believe in him. But are miracles enough, authoritative enough, to compel us to believe? Do they 
compel us to the point where we should absolutely believe. Well, back in the Old Testament, God warned his people, Deuteronomy chapter 13, says this, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign, there it is, or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says this, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. Now, keep in mind here, a sign has happened. And he's telling Israel, his people, signs will come. There are going to be sign workers. And in fact, if you go back into Egypt, you remember Pharaoh's magicians were able to perform signs. And I think that those were kind of commonplace signs, like expected signs. Satan has a way of confusing people with his own signs says, if that guy comes along and says, let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. You see, what this is coming back to is the reality that our relationship with God should not ultimately come down to a sign performed, but belief. It's belief that God is depending on or looking at from our hearts. It's belief that is necessary for us to walk in a relationship with him. The great deceiver might come along and produce all kinds of fancy signs. Well, maybe I should go after that God. Signs are not the ultimate reasons for us to believe. Everything that God wants us to know about himself is recorded in his word. You must believe God's word by faith. So again, the situation that you're in right now, if I just had a sign... Maybe I should try Gideon's fleece and just kind of throw that out there and just see if God will give me a sign that I should move in this direction or in that direction. And all the while, it says, here's God's commandments, here's his word, and so what do we do? We place ourselves under the word and obey his commandments and belief. So this request for a sign is an attempt by the Pharisees to gain what can only be gained by faith. You have to realize that your heart is only going to receive Jesus as deliverer, not by more signs, but by actual faith. That's what Jesus is facing here. Now, how does he respond to this? You would think if he's saying, oh, come on, just give us a sign, he'd say, okay, boom, here's your sign, and I'm going on my way. He doesn't even do that. Instead, what he does is he establishes his authority over the Pharisees, and I love what takes place here, the way that Jesus does this. You have to remember the Pharisees were a cultural powerhouse. You didn't want to get on the bad side of these men. They were major influencers. They could make your life rough. And yet, what does Jesus do? They request a sign from him. He asks the generation, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And what did he do? He gets in the boat, he leaves them, and goes to the other side. 
I wish I was there with the disciples because you have to understand the sort of authority that the Pharisees had on culture there. And here they are, they're approaching Jesus as big shots, and I can only imagine the disciples kind of maybe fidgeting with their fingers like, oh great, here comes, a, here comes the bad guys. And Jesus just coolly responding to them, saying, mm-mm, I'm not your guy. You don't have any authority over me. In fact, I'm not giving you another sign. It's time for us to go, boys. Let's go. And off they go in their rowboat across the sea. And I wonder if Jesus was on the bow of that boat looking back at the Pharisees, just kind of raising his eyebrows like, what are you going to do, dudes? (laughs) Nothing. You don't own me. Jesus is the one who has all authority. His word is final. And the question that is staring us in the face here is, do you have eyes in your heart to see Jesus as the authority? Or are you like the Pharisees who say, he's not the authority? We just can't believe that. We have something else that's our authority. And you say, no, I'm not like a Pharisee. That's not my, that's not my cup of tea. Okay, does your life reflect the authority of Jesus on a heart level? I mean, we can say it, and I think we all would in good conscience say, please don't lump me in with these folks over here. Okay, let's not lump ourselves in with that. But does our life reflect the belief that Jesus is the deliverer, that he is the one with all authority, and that we are trusting in him? Maybe you're here this morning, you're feeling conflict in your heart as to whether or not you're going to step out in faith and follow Jesus as more than just a part of life. So young people, you just came back, many of you just went to D3, and you were nudged and pushed and you had heard great preaching and teaching. All of that's wonderful. Now what about this next coming week? Is Jesus the authority in your, do you believe that he is the authority in your life? So all of us, in one sense, are on that shore where Jesus is. And here's this other competing authority in our life, this desire in our life, and there's Jesus. And the question is, are you going to hang out with the thing that's on the shore there? Or do you see yourself getting the boat saying, I'm taking a step out in faith and I'm identifying with this Jesus who has the authority in all of life? It reflects in the decisions that we make. It reflects in the things that we say. It reflects in the choices. Get in the boat with Jesus. Trust him. And some of you might be saying, yeah, but I need something more, Nate. You don't understand. I'm just struggling. I'm struggling in my faith today. I'm struggling to believe. And I can say I understand through experience. I've gone through seasons in my own life where I've questioned the gospel. I've had seasons where I question whether or not I actually had enough faith. And Nate, you're calling me to just like step out in faith. But come on, we can't really just flip that switch when we want to. Like I want it full blast on. I hear what you're saying, but I'm in this struggling moment right now to just believe and surrender to him and identify fully with him. And maybe you're even saying, I know, I I believe that he's the savior, but My faith isn't as intense as I want it to be right now. Let me just give you some practical points here. God brings us through those seasons by prayer, asking God to build our faith 
is what we see in Scripture. Later on, we'll see a man coming to Jesus who says, I believe, but help my unbelief. It's a prayer there. So we can pray. We can intentionally turn our attention to Jesus as the Savior and meditate on him. And let our thoughts go back to him regularly. It's important for us as Christians to to intentionally discipline our mind, to think upon him so that he is worth following. But third, as you look at him, you can also see that he is the one who is holding on to you. Trust the promises that you are not simply holding on to Jesus as though you're on a swing going out over the river and you're supposed to hold on to that with your own strength and hold your own weight and you feel all of your weight bearing down on that rope there as you swing out over the river. That's not what's happening. God's arm is coming down from heaven holding you so tightly to himself and Romans 8 says that nothing can separate you from his love. Trust the promises that God is holding you right now, even in this moment on the shore where you're wondering, am I leaning into Jesus' authority or not? God brought me through this by faith. 1 Peter 1.5 says this, that who, that's we, us, by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And so when I'm thinking about this, that Jesus is the deliverer and Jesus is establishing his authority, there are all kinds of things that we're struggling with because of what we see. And what does God call us to do? He says, keep coming by faith, not by what you see, not by what you're experiencing, not by what you're feeling. Do you believe in what I've said? Keep leaning into Jesus as the deliverer. All right, third, Jesus calls us to remember Jesus calls us to remember. All right, so in the boat, it's time for the Pharisee, or for Jesus to talk about the Pharisees and Herod. And he tells them simply, beware or watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So leaven is simply yeast. It goes into dough. It permeates all portions of the dough and causes it to rise. Okay, so it affects the whole lump of dough. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were the religious elites who go through the motions of religion. Herod, on the other side, is a pagan unbeliever who lived for his senses. We've seen this earlier. He divorced his own wife in order that he could have his brother's wife. He beheaded John the Baptist in order to keep peace with people. He represents the lusts of the world. So, beware of the leaven of religion that can permeate so easily, and beware of the leaven of lusts that can permeate so easily. This is what Jesus is calling us to. And so the disciples, they don't get it. All of a sudden they're thinking in terms of physical things like he just mentioned leaven. He's talking about dough. And they look in the boat and they're like, oh, stink. We're on this journey and we only have one loaf of bread. And Jesus has to be going there like, guys, stop, stop. You don't get it. I'm talking about bigger realities here. Beware of this. And and now they're fixated on this bread. And and Jesus goes through this list of questions. And he starts saying to them, hey, do you not have eyes to see? Do you not have ears to hear? 
Are your hearts hardened? And then he goes on to this and he says, do you not remember? And what is he calling them to? He says this, I broke the five loaves for the 5,000. For how many basketfuls were taken up afterwards? They say 12. And where did we just come from? How many loaves there? Seven for the 4,000. How many basketfuls did we have? They said seven. And it's like he's saying over and over again, guys, don't you realize that I am the one who meets you where you are and I am the one who brings you through your trials? And so we all say, yes, we've gone through these situations in life where they're physical in nature. They're challenges in nature. We're like, how are we going to get through this? And what Jesus is saying is, don't you remember, I'm the one who kept bringing you through it all the time. Do you remember my past graces to you? It's really a good practice to think back over how God has been faithful to you over the years. He has brought us through so many things, and, and really, you couldn't have written the script for it all. You never would have written that script to enter into it with that child who rebelled, and yet God somehow brought you through it and guarded your heart. That physical condition that you never expected, and yet God brought you through it all the way. And sometimes the physical things don't even get fixed, but you look back and you say, God was faithful the whole way. And that's what he's saying, don't you remember? Don't you remember? Recall what God has done in your heart. And again, the disciples, they just didn't get it. Jesus is bringing them along. And one of the cautions that we have to be careful about is a hardened heart to what God has done. On a day-to-day level, Jesus is not seen as the one whom the disciples can go to for help and deliverance and physical things. And again, just going back to where I sort of introduced the sermon with those two events in our context, you see people who are looking to any other place other than Jesus for deliverance. And it's like the heart is hardened. And when fears creep in, And when anxiety creeps in, you know that your hope is in circumstances that are kind of eroding away. That's a hardened heart. Don't you remember how God has been gracious and brought you along? What Jesus is doing is continually pounding the nail of belief in who he is. Who is this Jesus? Well, Mark provides us with another miracle, and that is with this blind man. So letter D on your outline, Jesus heals our blindness. Some people bring this blind man to Jesus. They beg Jesus to touch him, and he takes the blind man, leads him outside of the village, spits on his eyes. Remember I talked to you about that last week or the week before, that in this context, there was the belief that spit from important people could be medicinal in purpose, in in nature. Uh, That could be an explanation. I I don't have any other explanation for you, so take it or leave it. It's not in the text, so you can leave it if you want. Um, And he, he puts spit on the guy's eyes, and he asks, do you see anything? And the guy says, I see people, but they're like trees that are walking. So most likely, this guy lost sight later in life so that he would know what trees look like and what people look like. 
And you can imagine that circumstance where he wakes up blind one morning or gets something in his eyes that takes away his sight and the loss that he must have experienced in that. Jesus lays his hands on the man again, and now the man sees very clearly. Now, what is Mark's point in placing this miracle here? All right, you need to keep this in mind that so many times the miracles function like parables. They have a message in and of themselves. Let me give you an example before I get to this one. Before Jesus called his disciples to follow him, they were out fishing in Luke's gospel. They got no fish. And he says, hey, you need to be fishing right over here. And they're like, ah, okay. Eventually they cast their nets down. They bring in all kinds of fish. They're like, wow, what a catch. Jesus brings them to the shore. And do you remember his words after that? Now I'm going to make you fishers of men, right? So the miracle was like a parable. The miracle had, had meaning to it for the disciples. The same thing here. And you see this throughout Jesus' ministry where his miracles have meaning to them. And so what's the meaning here? We're all blind. And Jesus comes along and he starts his work of sanctification, salvation first, and bringing us along, and there's fuzziness. And perhaps you can remember this. When you accepted Christ, you're like, wow, this is all new. I'm never going to get this right. And so you kept walking with the Lord and kept coming to him. And then you look back and you're like, oh, I used to be fuzzy there in my understanding. But now I'm starting to see that very clearly. But now looking forward, I'm in this place where I'm still beginning to learn or I'm still challenged. Or I don't see God as clearly as I want to. We're all continually moving. Thankfully, there are those times where Jesus says, let me help you see clearly. Let me give this to you clearly. God is always in the process of clarifying our vision, showing us how he meets our needs, showing us how he addresses fear in our lives, showing us how he has led us to follow him instead of giving in to ourselves, showing us how he peeled back another layer of pride. Hear, hear. God is constantly opening up our eyes to see him as the one who delivers. And so if you're here this morning saying, I want what you're saying. I want what you're saying. But I feel like my faith is fuzzy. Be confident that Jesus is at work just clarifying your own vision, clarifying your own heart, and showing himself more clearly to you as the deliverer. That's who Jesus is. Which leads us to the second point. This is the top, a mountain peak in Mark's book. He leads us to a point of confession. Point number two is simply, we must now believe who Jesus is. We must believe who Jesus is. All right, so he has shown us what he is capable of doing. He has established his authority. And now it's our turn to respond. So he turns to his disciples and asks, who do the crowds say that I am? And it's just kind of an interesting question. This is always a good way for conversation if you want to get into somebody's heart. What do those people say about me? <laughs> you know, in small group, if you're ever feeling crickets in there, like nobody's talking, it's because they don't want to talk about themselves. Just ask them to talk about the world. And wow, I mean, here's an avalanche of opinions about the world. What does the world think about this? What does the world think about that? In our small group, I got to say, stop, stop. I've heard enough about that. That's what he's doing. 
what do they say about me? And then he comes back and asks the question to Peter, or to the disciples, who do you say that I am? I hear what the crowds are saying, but who do you say that I am? To which Peter responds and says, you are the Messiah. You are the deliverer. And now Peter has reached a point in his heart where his eyes are opening. He's seeing Jesus more clearly. He's the deliverer from the Old Testament that they have been waiting for. He's the king whom they have been longing for. He is their Christ right in front of them. So what he must do in his role as king will come forward in the next few weeks. It's an unlikely and unexpected role that he will take on as a king. But one of the roles is certainly deliverance. He will deliver his people from the domain of darkness and bring them into the kingdom of his marvelous light. So folks, I'm hoping that when you come out of this, you can see through verses 1 through 26 who Jesus, what he has done. But now we have to stand in Peter's shoes and be asked that same question. Who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus? He is the Messiah. And so we look at things that have been going on in this last week, and we can see that the world is longing for deliverance. The world is longing from the deepest part of their hearts, like, what am I going to do? And you step back and you're like, wow, he's given us deliverance here. The answer is not going to be in red or blue. And praise God for the decision that came down this last week. But here we see all kinds of people who are just saying, where am I going to go with my fears? It just shows people need deliverance. Again, teens, so thankful that you've been able to be part of a vibrant ministry here with our church. Some of you are concerned about things in your life. And you haven't been able to articulate it. Why? Because it's scary to articulate your fears. What do you want to see happen? I want you just to come back to this, that you don't know how the circumstances are going to unfold, but Jesus, staying close to him, he will bring you through that circumstance. He's the deliverer. Some of you are struggling in relationships. You've wanted your marriage to deliver, but it hasn't. You keep coming back to this, who Jesus is, and saying, no matter what, I'm holding on to this Messiah. I believe in who he is. He will be my deliverer. My encouragement is that we must believe in who Jesus is. We'll face the trials. We have to go through them. We're pilgrims and sojourners. But hold on to who Jesus is. He will deliver you through himself. Let's pray. God, it's a truth that we have to hold on to this morning. A lot of unknowns in so many lives this morning. And there will be more challenges that come up. You know that. You know the end from the beginning. And Lord, 
our response after coming through your word is that like Peter, we should see Christ. We should see deliverance. We should see hope in who Jesus is. We have a relationship with him and access to you and now we can even right now come before your throne because Jesus has delivered us and we can request grace, mercy. And so God, help us. Help us not to be people who are bowing down to worldly hopes for our deliverance. We put all this other stuff aside, Lord. We say no matter where we are, we follow you. Just with your heads bowed, you might be a non-Christian this morning. We talked about the good news of Jesus who delivers you from sin. This morning, will, will you believe in him? And then, Christian, here comes another week. Will you turn from yourself to Jesus and follow him in faith? Believe that in following him, he is the Messiah. In him, you find your peace and security as a deliverer. Just talk to God in the quietness of your heart, and then I'll come back and pray. So, Lord, we come to you, and we want our lives not to be just, we don't want our words to be the defining characteristic or the say of our lives. We want our lives, the actions of our lives, the joy in our hearts, the peace to be evident And we want that to be the fruit that shows that our heart is anchored and rooted and tethered in an uncompromising way to you. So God, please remind us of these truths as we go through yet another week. We want to be honoring and glorifying to you. And thank you for who you are. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.